Welcome to Firewall. Uh, I'm Hugo Lindgren. Uh, Bradley is off today, and in his place, we have Quinn Sheehan, who works for Tusk Strategies and Tusk Venture Partners in Chicago, focusing um, mostly on uh, digital health and the regulatory environment surrounding it. Uh, Quinn, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Um, it's a first, long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> so we're, we're really glad to have you. Quinn, uh, there's a lot of uh, stuff we want to get into today um, about digital health, but I want to start a little bit about, about you and your background and, and how you got into this field. Yeah, so um, kind of starts and ends with Bradley, so we have him to... To, to blame, I guess. Uh, so I worked in uh, politics right out of college, um, and I actually worked with Bradley. I was in D.C. He was in Illinois. I was doing polling, um, getting more interested in kind of the policymakers I was dealing with, one of which was Bradley. He told me to go to law school, uh, so I, <laughs> I followed that advice. I love that Bradley told you to law school, go to law school because he went to law school and then never practiced law. Correct. Yes, yes. So uh, he, he said, you should go to law school. Uh, he doesn't remember this, but he did. He did, and because I, I said, you know, I want to do what you're doing in the governor's office. He had done a lot of innovative things. So he told me to go to law school. I did. Uh, I became a lawyer. Uh, I hated it, but I, you know, I did a few things. I found out some things that I did like. So I practiced for five years. Um, I was a litigator. I it did a lot of different things, but one of the things I worked on was product liability and pharmaceutical and med device. And so what that means are those lawsuits you see on TV that's like, did you take this drug? Uh, I was on the side of the pharmaceutical companies, but I got to interact with a lot of physicians and people in the pharmaceutical world. And I, I knew that I had an interest kind of in health policy going forward, um, but I was ready to leave. And then I reconnected with Bradley. Uh, he had just started Tusk Ventures. So he he entered me into the legal world and he saved me from, <laughs> from it. Uh, and I, you know, recognized they were building something pretty special over here. And so that was about six years ago. So I've now not practiced longer than I practiced. Right, right. And, and you work at, at uh, Tusk Venture Partners, you work with a bunch of a bunch of startups that, that I think um, uh, our listeners are probably somewhat familiar with, Roe, Alma, Wheel. How would you characterize the sort of regulatory environment surrounding these companies? Like what's the, what's the big challenge that they, that, they, that they tend to have in common? Sure. I, I think just on a macro level, the biggest challenge with, you know, companies entering the virtual care digital health space have different names is just the sheer number of regulations that they have to be aware of. And, and for a, a startup that's starting and thinking to scale can be really overwhelming. You know, I always say like, this is not selling mattresses. Um, and, a, you know, what a lot of these companies have done really well is shift the focus to the pa patient. They've um, really, you know, zeroed in on how to make the patient experience better in healthcare. Um, I think some of them, not our companies, are unaware of the sheer number of, of regulations. So what I kind of mean by that. Yeah, that, let's talk about it, like a regulation that is something that you kind of wouldn't expect. Or... So on a basic level, companies that are delivering healthcare services, all 50 states, well, 51, DC2, have their own regulatory frameworks for how they look at the practice of medicine or the delivery of healthcare. And so any company that's looking to scale if, you know, let's say they're using a technology in one state where they don't do video, they do what's called asynchronous or chat, 
um, that might per be permitted in one state, but not another. So when they're scaling, you know, they're going to have to adapt the model and be aware of all the different regulations each state has um, on the practice of, of medicine. Above that is a whole other level, which is our federal laws, which have to do with privacy and consumer protection, um, some around prescription drugs. So it's really an intricate kind of regulatory framework. Um, and what's funny is when a lot of the venture-backed companies kind of started taking off, this was pre-pandemic, in the telehealth space, there were articles written about, oh, they're operating in this regulatory vacuum and it's the wild west. And I think all the companies were like, would you, would you like to see our legal bills? Like this is not a regulatory vacuum. In so who's saying that that's just sort of a media thing? Like, like, yeah, I think it was a media thing. And I think that there's sometimes with any type, you know, of a venture backed model generally. And, and at that point we were still kind of having the after effects of Theranos and just everything that had to do that was new and innovative in healthcare was kind of being compared to that a little bit. Oh yeah. Um, and you know, the question always in this space is, are you doing something traditional, but in a new way, are you building on an accepted infrastructure and making it better through the use of technology, which is a lot, what, what our investments really were doing. Uh -huh. uh, then there's a separate question of like, are you doing a totally unproven thing, which can often happen with certain therapeutics or drugs, and then also delivering it in a new way that cuts out other channels. So um, I think some of the early companies in the virtual care telehealth space were being kind of unfairly thrown in um, as just rogue when, when what they were doing, uh, I don't want to say wasn't novel, but you know, they were connecting patients to providers and in some cases to pharmacy services. So they just were doing it in a really new way that was frictionless and focused more on the patient. Right. Right. And, and a little bit outside some of the existing mechanisms that, yeah. that people uh, felt protective of. <laughs> absolutely. And they were, you know, what's interesting and what I've always liked about this space is that it's connecting it's connecting patients when and where they, they need care and at what times. And it might be at one in the morning when they finally finished their day and gotten around to what they need to do, whether it's ordering birth control or, you know, other kind of low acuity routine conditions. And that's the time that they have to, you know, write their physician or connect with them. Even if they don't want an answer back right at that moment, they might get one. But, you know, it allows them to engage um, when they need to. And so, you know, that has, that is always what's been appealing to me in this space is how a lot of these innovators are, are really starting with the patient and their needs. Um, and, in, and, you know, they've, that's always their customer, I guess I would say. I mean, it's a, it's a patient, but it's also their customer. And they were able to build their frameworks from the ground up with that in mind. I think it's harder Right. If you're a hospital system and we've seen or health system or we've seen those tensions when they quickly had to adapt to offering telehealth during the pandemic, it's just it, it is harder. But if you start with kind of a clean slate of mind and thinking about the patient at every aspect when you're building your company, um, it can result, if done properly, in a better experience for the patient. Now, 
so the, the 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 drill is for for virtually all these companies, they have to just go state by state, right? They get approval here, approval there, and, and they sort of fill out the map. Is there a difference in strategy where, like, okay, we're going to go into New York or California or Florida because they're these big states with huge markets, or is there like an alternative, like we're going to go to a really small state that has a less complex regulatory framework and show that it's successful, and then other states will want it. Is that is that does that is that part of the, a strategy that works, or is that not the way it works? Um, I think it, it I think it can work that way. I mean, there's um, depending on what you're doing, you don't necessarily need approval from the state. Um, you just need to be compliant with what the state framework is. I think some people who are offering newer services and might have a state partner, or they might find an insurance partner if they want to offer a particular service and partner with a plan, they might, it might just be that they start in the state where they have the best relationship with the payer. Right. And they use that as a model. They show their health outcomes. Um, they show adherence rates. They show more patient engagement. And then they'll use that there. So it, it can depend. Um, but as you mentioned, also some places are harder, you know, so something with virtual care that not everyone understands, I think more and more people do now, your provider needs to be licensed in the state where the patient is, not where the provider is sitting. And in some states, you know, you might not have a provider workforce that has licenses in certain markets. So you have to go through that process. And depending on the bureaucracy in the state, it can take longer. Uh, but that's a, that's a problem that became more visible and acute. And a lot of people are asking questions post-pandemic because it's like, well, if I'm a doctor, like, why can't I treat someone in this other state um, if I'm licensed here. So as I said, there's, we have regulatory frameworks right now. And I think the pandemic showed this, not that we're outdated, but don't align with a virtual care model necessarily. And if you're going to access all the benefits of this model. So for example, let's say there's a clinical trial in Pennsylvania and you're in New Mexico, and it would really benefit you to be a part of it. The, the doctor in Pennsylvania doesn't have as much incentive to be licensed in New Mexico, right? Right. But you want access to those services. So it's it's how do we, you know, thinking about patient safety and accountability and, and all, of, all of those important metrics, but also thinking about access and how do we leverage the technology that telehealth and virtual care provides in a way that we can really see the benefits. And, and that's, I think, on the regulatory front, what it revealed um, on state frameworks. You, you mentioned the pandemic. Uh, I, I, it is obviously a big sort of boost to a lot of telehealth mm -hmm. um, companies. Um, and it just became something that people who may never have thought of getting their health care that way, um, you know, tried out or, or got familiar with. How has it changed the, the, the sort of startup space um i mean it, it, are there just tons of companies sort of flooding in because of uh because of the pandemic yeah i think that's exactly right i mean so whenever i get asked what was the biggest change around telehealth it's, it's obviously use but i think more than that it's just this inertia that was existing around trying out telehealth tools right so it was somewhere around 10 percent was usage in 2019 
and according to some surveys. What does that and mean, 10%? So 10% like had, had, had another doctor that. on Zoom or like what, what, what does that mean exactly? That just means that, you know, 10% of people had connected with a provider at a remote location for the, to receive healthcare services. Uh-huh. Um, and in that we, you know, it's kind of changed now because the, the phone traditionally wasn't seen as kind of a main telehealth medium, but in that we, you know, really meant engaging, as you said, over a video chat or some type of asynchronous back and forth portal. So that was around 10%. And then after, you know, COVID, everyone was forced to. And I think it moved off that mindset. So providers were forced to, 70% used it for the first time. And in doing so, and patients did, they realized that for some needs, it worked just as well or better uh, for their needs and their circumstances, whether they're homebound, whether their work schedules didn't permit going in to, to check on something, whether they might not have had that follow-up appointment because oh, they normally felt fine or, you know, it, it really bridged access in that way. But I, I can't get, I can't stress enough that in, you know, I've been working to policy for six years that talking to policymakers or regulators pre pandemic, when they just, they hadn't had the experience um, to post is totally different because now they've done it themselves and they like it and they want it to stay and remain an option that's available to them. Um, and, and that is what more than anything, this mindset shift um, has resulted from, you know, in my opinion, the pandemic. Right. On the startup side, obviously, as you mentioned, or on the venture side, you know, there's just so many, so many companies now. We were seeing that trend, you know, building up to the pandemic. But I laugh because, you know, there used to be that, like, they have those CB Insight graphics where they, you know, kind of sector off all the different companies in an industry. And telehealth used to be just like one. And now they've just broken it into like eight different you know, <laughs> different service lines. Um, so just the number of stakeholders and people involved in, in these discussions has changed dramatically um, since, you know, since Tess started getting involved here. Who is against telehealth? Like what, who's standing in the way of, of, of companies getting approval for things for, for, for the, the broader expansion of this, of this industry? That's a great question. Um, so one of the things just to start that I love about telehealth and I have to point out is that <laughs> any other issue, it is bipartisan. So we had a thousand bills introduced across the country last year in all 50 states, and many of them passed unanimously um, with bipartisan support. It is one thing where we have agreement in this country that its expansion and adoption needs to continue. I think we can run into some problems and I'm saying right now, not necessarily previously, um, around payment. That is always kind of a question. A lot of our investments, you know, are working on a cash pay model outside of the insurance framework. So they're not as always involved in those debates. But I think there are questions of how should telehealth be reimbursed? Should it be reimbursed at the same rate as an in-person service? Or should it be reimbursed less because of the efficiencies 
Um, so I think insurers, while a lot of the plans are really excited about certain telehealth services, don't want mandates there. Um, I think we've seen boards shift a lot um, in pre-pandemic. Again, there was a lot of resistance from medical boards um, who did not believe telehealth services you know, were appropriate outside of limited instances, who wanted in-person requirements before telehealth could be used. Um, we've seen some shift on that in certain states. I think there's still a reluctance um, that's twofold. One is obviously competitive um, because people from out of state can then, if licensed, come in and treat patients. But I think there's also an education gap and a misunderstanding of what it is some of these companies are doing um, and ways in which they're engaging patients who otherwise want it. I think there's a trap sometimes when we talk about telehealth and we talk about telehealth policy, and I, I hear people say this, well, if they were getting in-person care, the doctor would do X, Y, Z. And I think what we need to realize is that for many of these patients, they aren't going to in-person care. The alternative to the care that they're getting via telehealth is no care. And, you know, what does, and that needs to be brought into cost discussions too, because if you're triaging somebody at home, um, as opposed to coming into a primary care office, which they're not gonna do, um, and helping them solve that issue at the moment where they're engaged and want to, um, you could be saving a lot of costs down the road from ED visits or you know, a more serious condition. So I think we have to often shift, there's a lot of assumptions when we're talking about telehealth policy um, that are embedded that we, we need to break down. Uh, the, the other one I'll just point out, you know, there's been a uh, test of focus has always been on the state level, just because we believe that's where real change can can happen. Um, but there's been a lot of discussions on the federal level, which are trickling down to the states around fraud. Um, and is telehealth, you know, just opening the door for fraud, particularly on billing or, you know, unsuspecting patients. And it's it's funny because. I think when you just think of it, it's like, well, of course it is. It's going to be easier to like yeah, just focus medical care kind of stuff. Like, yeah, and it's just it's. I think we have that with all technology, you know, new innovative systems. It's like, oh, well, there's going to be abuse or, and when what the OIG and others have shown is that telehealth really isn't more susceptible to fraud than in-person care yet. The data is not there. I think conceptually, like, well, of course it is, but it's like, it. it that hasn't been shown yet. Um, That's interesting. We had that, you know, Tusk worked in the alcohol delivery space and there, it was a similar kind of mind block or just assumption that they're like, well, there's no way they can check IDs. And it was like, well, they, they do, they verify. Right. Right. And, you know, but just, it's like, that has to just allow kids to get booze. And, you know, I think there is something to be said that the model itself could be more susceptible to bad actors. It could be. Um, but that that broad brush shouldn't be painted against the industry as a whole. Um, so I I think more education will kind of break down some of those misperceptions or assumptions um, about new models. So where is the line moving? I mean, brick and mortar sort of care is still it's still kind of the default, right? I mean, um, the telehealth in I mean, or 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 is it still the default? Um, everywhere. It'll be interesting to see. I think it will be still, at least for a while, the default. What I think will change is kind of 
you know, two things. The, the first is that I think more and more patients now want digital first, that the first stop could be a, a telehealth encounter and could be a triage that's initial, you know, from your home and, and can this be taken care of without you coming in? And I think that's part of the mindset shift for both providers and patients. Do I need, you know, I did this during the pandemic, do I need to come in? Um, particularly on behavioral health, is, is somewhere else like that? Like, is this really necessary? So I think, you know, we believe that patient journeys will will start at the virtual um, or at the, you know, the digital interaction. Um, I think fears that in-person care is going to disappear altogether are just, uh, you know, um, unwarranted at this point. People are already going back into brick and mortar facilities. But I think the patient expectation there, which I always hope is where the focus of our healthcare system should be, uh, is now, provider, you need to keep this up. You need to keep up the telehealth offering. It wasn't just something you had in place during the pandemic. I, I want it to remain an option. Conversely, I think as we move further and further along, I think the kind of next generation of telehealth companies will start to integrate a hybrid model themselves uh, where appropriate, or at least directing patients to where they can can get that in-person care if it's needed. Now, working in this as you do, um, does it make you more open to trying things like in telehealth that you might not have done before? I mean, is it is it like, a, has it changed your life? You know, I always say I was an initial telehealth user in like kindergarten. So I had. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I had severe asthma when I was little. Okay. And I got enrolled in a clinical study that, you know, it wouldn't have been available to me. I and mean, this is part of what I'm going back to more and more again. It wouldn't have been available to me in the absence of technology. Right. And I had this like little machine where I'd take a medicine and I'd record my breathing. And then we'd go to the doctor's office and they'd plug it into their landline, which would get sent all my data. It was like an initial remote patient monitoring is what they call it. Um, it would get sent, I think it was in Texas, right? And so I've always been open to that. But yeah, I think as someone who's absorbing their own healthcare costs, I think that's a whole other part of the equation, right? So if we're rethinking cost of healthcare generally, and, and we are already putting people in control of their healthcare costs, more and more people are on high deductible health plans, you know, telehealth does work well, particularly for low acuity in those contexts. And a lot of the new models are building, you know, around those realities, both on the patient experience, but even transparency on cost upfront. Um, access to generics in a really frictionless way. So I'm I'm always up for for trying things we hear about. Now, one thing that there's a lot of uh, talk in the press um, about sort of healthcare worker burnout and a shortage of workers um, is is telehealth kind of a, a solution to that, or a, a, it, it seems like it seems like if you're if you're having a more direct relationship or a virtual relationship with your with your provider there there's less manpower required you know it, it seems like yeah i think there's certain models that have really focused wheels one of our companies that's focused on empowering providers both in you know the types of patients they want to work with and working on their own schedules one of the things that telehealth leverages um is is 
removing a lot of the administrative, as you kind of pointed out, um, and paperwork entry and burnout, particularly those companies that have, you know, you go to the doctor's office and you fill out a lot of forms, right? And then afterwards, the doctor has to sit and input those forms or others do and do charting. Telehealth has like really helped make that a little bit more streamlined and seamless um, in a way that's reducing some of that burnout. Um, I just think healthcare providers generally, um, after the two years that they've had, um, are feeling more and more burnt out and you know looking for new models of patient care um, where they can interact with patients in, in ways that they want to and spend time, devote their time to those that need more attention and those that you know might need less and have, have quicker questions. How much is the generational divide at play here? Is is are are older um, consumers uh, more skeptical, less likely to 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 look at telehealth options? That's a good question, and it's harder. You know, I think there's been surprisingly. I need to find the stats on this. I should have them, but um, among older populations, they have been engaged. Um, the The big hurdle before was that it was really difficult uh, to have reimbursement under Medicare. For telehealth prior to the pandemic, a lot of those restrictions were temporarily waived and that's something Congress is dealing with right now. So it's harder to compare, you know, prior to now. I think there are digital access gaps among elderly, but also those in underserved communities. And that is something, you know, there's there's issues that are unique to telehealth and then there's just systemic issues that telehealth intersects with and can't necessarily solve without broader solutions. So um, but there has been adoption, um, yeah, among seniors. I know my parents have done a number of telehealth visits. They're almost 80 and have loved it. Finally, finally understood what I was working on right, <laughs> for right. this many years. It was very exciting. Yeah, no, it seems like, I mean, particularly for older people who have difficulty getting around and stuff, it seems like it would be a, a, a massive benefit. But but I'm just wondering if, if there's a just a, a habit that's formed over the years that's hard to break, you know, um, people people are used to the sort of in-person experience. I think it, yeah, and I think that that's natural. I think providers have that natural, you know, natural hesitancy. And it, it, it really, I think telehealth evangelists, of which I one, believe that the, the care setting that should be used is the one that's best for the patient and their circumstances in agreement with the provider. And so I think when we think about regulatory frameworks, it really shouldn't be like you can use telehealth X, Y, Z. It's it's telehealth is healthcare in a new setting, the way urgent care, community clinic, and ED, it's appropriate for some things and patients, and it's not for all right now. Um, But we need to move away from treating it as a separate type of healthcare instead of a it really is just a different setting of healthcare and a different way that a provider can connect with patients. What's the, so this is my final question, sort of a blue sky type question. What, what is the kind of the frontier of telehealth? Like what, what's the, what's the, as you look out from here, what, what's the, what are the big changes that are kind of on the horizon? I think we're going to continue to reshift the focus on the patient. And I hope more and more of those models continue. And so we've broken this kind of logjam of, you have to be treated in an office. Telehealth is an exception, not the rule, or virtual care. And and thinking more and more about, you know, there's great groups that are doing this, but like, how can we 
treat people in their home and, and how can we improve technology to reduce those access barriers um, if if they're not clinically necessary, right? And so um, I, once we start to figure out a little bit more on the reimbursement frameworks and in a way that incentivizes and gives predictability to companies that are entering this space um, and certainty, that both their models will be reimbursed or that they'll be permitted. I think the more and more um, kind of innovation here will continue. The, the biggest thing that, you know, I always worry about is setting up protections that, I don't think they're nefarious, but they, you know, they have patients in mind, but they will, in effect, box out the people that they're intended to help the most. So you know, moving away from you have to use this technology or that technology and instead saying you need to follow the standard of care and ensure patient safety and the ways that you get there, you know, we're flexible, um, but you have to meet X, Y, and Z general standards. So that's what I'm, I'm hopeful that our regulatory frameworks will continue in that direction um, because I think it'll be better for patients and providers moving forward. Quinn, I have one very small uh, other question, which is yeah. not really all that um, relevant to our other discussion, but I'm just curious, you mentioned Theranos earlier. Um, is the trial of Elizabeth Holmes of interest to you? Do you follow it? Do you think it's 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 sort of like cool to um, uh, speculate about it and talk about it with your friends, or is it not a not something that you're curious about? I'm embarrassed to say that I started watching it and then dropped off. Uh -huh. um, I was fascinated, fascinated, fascinated uh, by the whole story and the podcast and the book. Um, but I haven't, I haven't totally been following the trial. Right. Did you know about Theranos pretty well before it all blew up? Was that on your It was always something we talked about um, around here and we're kind of fascinated, but I think we, I was just as surprised with some of the details. I won't say that it's, you know, this is something that I've loved about Tusk is that when the regulatory team here sees investments and has questions and says, this is not adding up or this is gray or this is black or, you know, we're in the gray area, we're in the, this isn't permitted area, our investment team listens. And um, I don't, you know, that from, from that side, it's just always been interesting to to see what went down there and the lessons learned. Yeah. Well, Quinn Sheehan, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Hugo. Really appreciate your uh, filling in for Bradley and, and I hope you can come back on sometime soon. Okay, thank you.